You know, several months ago, the New York Times came out with an article entitled, Searching for a Jesus that Looks More Like You. Searching for a Jesus that Looks More Like You. Now, I don't know how you feel about that title, but you should be a little bit concerned because I look across the crowd. I'm not sure I want Jesuses that look more like us uh, in this room. And basically, the article starts off with the author saying, um, close your eyes and imagine that Jesus is standing in front of you. What does that Jesus look like? And the point that the author makes is that every one of us has a little bit of a different view of who Jesus is. And then what the author does is he works his way through 12 different kind of famous artworks from from different cultures uh, across the globe to illustrate that even how different countries, different people, how they view Jesus differently. Turn your attention to the slide here. This is called the Ethiopian Last Supper. If you've ever been to Ethiopia, this is actually a pretty uh, common picture. This is how Jesus is often uh, portrayed in paintings. Uh, But you can see the the tables there, uh, the colors, uh, the skin tone of Jesus. It all points to a Jesus that's been influenced by Ethiopian culture. Um, The second one that you had, there you go. Uh, This is uh, the baptism of Jesus. This is uh, a a well-known piece of art um, out of China. So you can see some of the the influence from Chinese culture here. Now, the next one they showed, this is uh, Marari Jesus. Marari is an indigenous people group in New Zealand. So if you go to Sunday school class in New Zealand today, uh, Sunday school is like BFG, a little different. Uh, but if you went to Sunday school class, they might have a picture of this Jesus uh, up on, on the wall. Because this is what they kind of envision Jesus to be an indigenous type person. All right, go to the next one. This one may be a little bit more familiar to us North, American, uh, North Americans. This is uh, called the Portrait of, of Jesus. This was actually painted by students at McCormick Theological Seminary in the 1930s. And uh, in fact, this was a very popular rendition of, of Jesus. Uh, they actually made wallet-sized photos of this picture and gave it to all of the, those fighting in World War II. But as you can see, even in these pictures, how Jesus is viewed is not always the same in every culture. And here's what the article uh, strives to get after in the New York Times. It says, you know, we just need Jesus to look more like us. We need a Jesus that is multicultural. We need a Jesus that we can all relate to, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, even your gender, even your sexual orientation. We all need a Jesus we can relate to. And some of the artwork that he shows in this article uh, is, is unusual to us. It has even Jesus as a woman in one of the pictures. At the end of the day, in summation, the article is progressive garbage. I wouldn't recommend it to to any uh, of you, but what would you expect maybe from uh, that newspaper? Um, But it illustrates a tendency. It illustrates a tendency that I want us to take note of this morning. It's a tendency within humanity. Sometimes it's, it's just an honest mistake. Sometimes it's misguided. Sometimes it's downright sinful. But there's a, a, a tendency in humanity to paint a picture of Jesus, whether on a canvas or in our minds, of Jesus that looks more like me. Because that's, that's what I'm, I'm comfortable with. You know, if we were to, to pull out our cell phones right now, and you can feel free if you have a cell phone, you can do that. If you pulled up your camera app and you hit the little button that flips the camera around, the little circular button with the arrows, uh, as if you're, you're taking a selfie. In the first service, we did this, and I noticed all the millennials and young people pulled out the cameras, and all the people that were my age and older, they just stared at me. But if you look at your, your phone and you look at that image, 
If you're wondering what type of Jesus will you have a tendency, uh, um, a proficiency to, 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 to try to, to paint uh, in your mind, that's what Jesus is going to look like. That's your natural inclination. Uh, and it's not to say that when we think of Jesus that we attribute wrong attributes to Jesus. Oftentimes what we do is we create an imbalanced Jesus. So whatever is important to you, oh, it had to be, has to be important to Jesus, right? That's, that's, that's where we get ourselves in trouble. But I don't know about you, but I am more comfortable with a Jesus that thinks like me, looks like me, acts like me, believes like me, uh, sees the world through the lens in which I see the world. I want a Jesus that values the things that I value. I want a Jesus that's passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. But there is a danger in this, isn't there? Isn't there a danger in trying to, to shape a Jesus to look more like us? The danger is, in our world today, if you search hard and long enough, you can find any Jesus that you want, any version of Jesus, regardless of what the Bible actually says about Jesus. You know, 15 years ago, um, I was the uh, college pastor here, and we did a sermon series up in the college ministry. It was called Jesus Rocks the Vote. And uh, we were leading into the 2008 uh, presidential campaign. Um, and it was, it was fun. We had the room 200, 202 set up upstairs, and we had kind of banners of different political candidates. Uh, candidates. And we had um, the cardboard cutouts of John McCain and uh, Barack Obama. Not something you typically see in a Baptist church, right? And uh, anyhow, we had a lot of fun with it. And we were looking at different issues and what the Bible had to say about different political issues. And in preparing for that sermon series, I read a number of books on Jesus and politics. And what I found out really fast is that if you want a Jesus who believes a certain way, you can surely find a book that will show you that's what Jesus believed. If you want to believe Jesus is a conservative Republican, I've got the book for you. It's called How Would Jesus Vote? If you would really like Jesus to be more of a libertarian who hates equally Republicans and Democrats, you can read The Great Awakening. Basically, I learned that whatever Jesus you want, you can shape that Jesus into. Many moons ago when I was in seminary taking classes, uh, I was in a New Testament class and we were studying through um, historical theology and how theology has kind of changed uh, over the years in the church. And theology had a major shift in the early 1900s, especially coming out of Germany. There were a couple of theologians there that are, are well known even today, Immanuel Kant and Frederick Schleiermacher, and they came out with a different version of Christianity. That they, that, that they promoted. And it actually caught fire. A lot of people began to believe in it. And basically they said, imagine Christianity as kind of like a piece of corn, okay? And as you read through the Bible, the husk on that corn, that's all the supernatural things. That's all the miracles. Those aren't really the things that are important. We can kind of just pull the husk off of that corn because we really want to get to the kernel. The kernel, that's really what we want. That's, that's the truth. That's the, the moral, moral values that Jesus teaches us. And this is what was coming out of Germany at the time. And it's had great influence. In fact, I'll never forget my first semester in seminary, my roommate, a great friend of mine, who had been kind of struggling and waffling in his faith, he came to me one day after school and said, you know, Blake, I know we talk about Christianity. He goes, and he says to me, I think Christianity is like a piece of corn where you pull the husk off. And I'm like, where did he get this? It wasn't until years later, I was in seminary, and, and I realized he had a professor in college that was teaching him this liberal theology. 
But it's amazing how much Jesus, if you read the works of these, of these theologians, it's amazing how much Jesus ends up looking like a 19th century liberal German theologian. Because the reality is, whatever Jesus we want to find, we can create. Why? Why is it our natural tendency to do that? Why do we want to do that? Well, I have a quote here from John Calvin I want you uh, to take note of. I think this gives us uh, insight into why we want to do this. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Maybe you've heard that before. Calvin goes on to say, man's mind, full of its pride and its boldness, that's why we do this, dares to imagine a God according to our own capacity. That's what we do in our sinfulness. When we are not walking in the spirit, what we do is we create a God in our own mind, something that we can imagine. I don't know about you, but I do not want a God that I can fully understand. That's not a God that I want. I want a God that I can't fully understand his ways and, and they're mysterious to me. Here's the main point, all right? Even if, 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 you've, if you uh, go to sleep right now, I know we're about 10 minutes in. That's the time when some of us like to take a nap in the middle of a sermon, right? Even if you hear nothing else from me today, hear this. Our search for Jesus must begin and end with the Bible. That's all I want to say to you today. Our search for the real Jesus, the, the real, true, only Jesus must begin and end with the Bible. And I feel confident that as we search for this Jesus, he's going to look a lot less like you than you would hope. But it's the Jesus that you need. It's the Jesus that you need. And that's why I've entitled my message today, Searching for a Jesus Who Doesn't Look More Like Me, But That Actually Looks Less Like Me. Today, we're going to look at the triumphal entry. Uh, it's obviously, it's Palm Sunday. This is a passage that we will oftentimes look at on the Sunday before uh, Easter. And in the, in the story of the triumphal entry, there's four main characters, aren't there? There's obviously Jesus. Then we have the Pharisees. Uh, we've got the disciples. And then we have the crowds people. And among these different characters, what we do is we discover various perspectives on who they think Jesus is or what he's going to do. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at these different perspectives that were in the crowd. But first, I want us to note the, just the significance of this moment of the triumphal entry. I think sometimes we come each year on this Sunday and uh, maybe you realized it was Palm Sunday before you came. Maybe you only realized it when you walked in here and you saw all the green. I don't know. But we come and we often hear the story of the triumphal entry. We ask ourselves, why? Why do we need to study it? Why is it even Im Im important? I want to give you four reasons why I think it's important for us to look at this each and every year. The first is that it, th this scene kicks off Passion Week. It kicks off the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion and resurrection. So for those in the scene, it is Sunday morning, okay? When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it's Sunday morning, and this week will culminate on the following Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. It's an important scene, and John communicates to us that it's an important scene because almost half of his gospel is committed just for this week alone. One week in Jesus' life gets half of John's gospel. So it tells us that this is important. And it tells us it's also important because again and again and again, John is going to say, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, Jesus did this to fulfill this prophecy. In fact, on, on, on the day that Jesus was crucified, Good Friday, there are, over, there are 28 uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on that single day. So it's an important event because it kicks off the most important week in the Bible. 
The scene also is described in all four Gospels. That's another way that the Gospel writers tells us that things are important. If it's repeated, it's important. You know, when you tell your kids something, you say it again and again, you say it again and again because it's important. You want to communicate a message. So in Matthew 21, in Mark 11, Luke 19, here in John 12, we have the story of the triumphal entry. It's not been since the feeding of the 5,000 have we seen all four gospel writers write the same story. Another reason it's significant is because this really marks the public reveal of Jesus' true ministry. You know, up to this point, there's, there, Jesus kind of kept things on the down low. He's instructed people along the way after he's ministered to somebody or performed a miracle. And he said, you know, let's not go and share this with everyone. It's what we call his messianic secret. He doesn't want to stir the people up until he needs to or has to. And, and really, this scene is when all of that changes. Because the reality is you can't heal a man or bring a man back to life, Lazarus, a well-known man in his city, without grabbing the attention of people, Right. So right now in this scene, this is really when Jesus is saying for the very first time, I am who these people have been saying that I am. I truly am the king of Israel. The last reason I think this scene is important is, is because I think it marks uh, um, a, a delineation, a, a marker in Scripture when people have to finally decide, who do you say that I am? You have been following me. You've been hearing my good teaching. But who am I to you? Am I a prophet? Am I doing the work of Satan or am I truly the son of God? And that's what Jesus is going to call those in the crowd to make a decision. So what I want to do is I want to work through these texts and then we're going to look at the different perspectives in the crowd. I want to jump back first though to chapter 12 in John. Look at verses 9 through 11. Because this really sets the stage for the triumphal entry. It gives us the context of really what's happening let me read, it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, referring to Bethany, which is a city that's two miles from Jerusalem, uh, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the backstory is Jesus, he's coming, he's coming from Bethany, where big things have happened. You don't raise someone from the dead and people not notice, right? And the, the, the crowd is, is, is building. The momentum is building. You also have this powerful scene where, where Lazarus' uh, sister, Mary, she anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment. And if you remember, Judas gets really upset and said, hey, we should have given that money to the poor instead. And Jesus rebukes. Judas says, no. You know, you will, you will not forever have the Savior with you, but you will always have the, the poor with you. So you have these, these, these important scenes that, that, are, that have played out. So this is not your typical Holy Week. You know, a typical Holy Week, the, the Jews, they would come to celebrate the Passover. They would arrive. There would be excitement. You can imagine all the people flooding into the city and all the animals that would be flooding into the city. And, and, and so this is the scene, but this year it's special. This year, it's a, just, it's a little bit different. There's greater excitement because everything is coming to a head. What is going to happen with this Jesus? You have excitement on one side with the crowds people. You have hatred on the other side with the religious leaders. And then in verse 12 and 13, we see that the king, he is received with praise, isn't he? It says the next day, and this is Sunday morning, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there's a buzz in the air. They're excited. Okay, they, they've been watching the news. Jesus is arriving, right? And then it says, so they took, branches of palm, uh, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
palm branches. This is what palm branches look like. Uh, maybe uh, you kind of envision, maybe in, in, the, in the kids' BFG, maybe they would have some of these, and, and they would use these to illustrate a point, right? Many of our kids today will, will draw pictures of the palm branches and color, color them in, right? So we ask ourselves, what is, what's the significance of a palm branch? I mean, we look at this, and maybe we don't think much of it. Maybe we think they just kind of waved it to, to, to honor God and, or to honor Jesus, and certainly they did that. But to a first-century Jew, this meant a lot more than just a simple palm branch, because to them, in a sense, it was like a flag. There was definitely political and military undertones when it came to the, the palm branch. In fact, if we were to go through the crowd and ask if we could look at their pocket change, we would see that some of the change that they had in their pocket had these pictures of palm trees that commemorated a revolt that happened uh, during the Maccabean era uh, there with the Israelites. So when they saw a palm branch, it wasn't just a simple palm branch that the kids would wave around. This meant something. To many of them in the crowd, they associated it with some type of a political revolt. So when we read this, we need to know that is the context uh, of the passage. So it's reasonable to believe that there were certain people in the crowd that thought Jesus is finally going to do it. He's going to call us to arms. We're going to go against the, the Romans. We're going to kick them out of, of, of Palestine. But then John records for us that the crowd, they, they are chanting something, aren't they? We've already sung it this morning. It's something that we find in, um, uh, in Psalm chapter 118, verse 24 and 25. They're, they're chanting, Hosanna, which means to save us. And this psalm was commonly sung. This was not unusual. They would have sung this psalm every single year. But you know what they didn't sing every single year? Is at the end of this verse, it says, it has these words, King of Israel. That was not recorded in Psalm 118. In, in D.A. Carson's commentary on this passage, he makes a big deal out of this phrase, saying that, that John specifically uh, put this into his, uh, into his account because he wanted to signify that many in the crowd understood Jesus to be this Messiah, this King of Israel. And then in verse 14 and 15, we, we see that Jesus, he rides in on a donkey. It says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So in John's account, along with Matthew's account, they both tie what Jesus has done here right back to Old Testament prophecy, back into to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read that to you just so you can see the, the common language here. So 500 years earlier, Zechariah writes this. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. Behold, uh, he is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So if we were to look at this, this Old Testament passage in its greater context, the prophet is, is describing a future king who is going to return to a fully restored uh, Judah. And this verse 9 is speaking specifically of the king that is going to lead the nation back to its restoration. So you can understand why some would have associated this with, with Jesus doing this. Because it's talking specifically about a king's entry into Jerusalem. And we see that Jesus, he's not returning on a war horse. That's what you might expect. But he's returning on a donkey. And he's saying, he is tying himself to what Zechariah has said 500 years earlier. And notice that John says this. He, he uses that phrase, as it is written. 
because he wants to remind us again and again, everything about Jesus' life, everything about his ministry went back to fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. In verse 16, uh, John is, uh, he's, he's blunt with us. He's honest with us. He reveals to us that the disciples, they didn't fully grasp everything that was happening before them. They, they didn't. He says this. He says, the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had been done to him. So writing many years after this event, you know, there are some that believe John wrote this gospel 50, even up to 60 years after the triumphal entry. And John admits that the disciples, they did not fully grasp what was happening. They wouldn't fully grasp it until Jesus was glorified at the ascension. But it does illustrate for us that the, the disciples were growing in their faith. I think sometimes we read the, the, the scriptures and we kind of project our, our own understanding um, of, of scripture onto the disciples. But these are just guys learning along the way. They're growing in their faith just like you and I. And then in verse 17 through 19, here at the end of the passage, we see this contrast between the crowds and the Pharisees. It said, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So there's all these people that were there at the healing or at the, at the raising of Lazarus, and now they're continuing to bear witness. They're sharing what Jesus has done, all this excitement, this momentum is building. And it says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is the camp, not very happy, not very delighted with what Jesus is doing at this moment. They say, you see you, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What a strong contrast between these two groups. The crowd, they're excited, they're joyful, they're praising God. The Pharisees, not so much. They despise Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus and the attention that he was receiving. They use this phrase, you are gaining nothing, which means there's no way to stop this momentum. There's no way to stop the excitement that is surrounding Jesus at this time. It says the world has gone after him. John is so particular with the words that he uses. When he writes that word world, he uses the word cosmos. Cosmos means big. Cosmos meets the world. And what John is saying is that, 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 that Jesus' fame, it has caught fire. And there is no way to contain this flame. And, and, it, and the momentum is growing. And what he's saying is that Jesus' word is going to reach all the peoples, all the people of the world. And if you cheat and you jump ahead to verse 20, you actually see an indication of this already happening. But here's the deal. If we were to go through this crowd, okay, again, all this excitement, all these people, they've made this journey. They've been saving up all year to be able to go to Jerusalem. You know, they, they, they got on Airbnb. They found housing. They never thought they'd find it. They've gotten there. Uh, you can imagine all the animals there, all this excitement. Now we're working our way through the crowd. We're working our way through the crowd. And we start to go up to people. And we start to interview them. You know, what kind of Jesus are you searching for? What are you kind of hoping Jesus will do over the next few days? I think these are the types of responses we would hear. First, I think we would hear from a crowd person saying something along, the, along these lines. I am seeking, I'm searching for a captivating Jesus who will make a splash. I'm searching for a, a captivating Jesus, an exciting Jesus who's going to make a, a splash. 
You know, when I was young, um, I went to a lot of parades. It's something that you do, especially maybe if you're from a small town, I'm from central Illinois. And I would go to a lot of parades with my grandpa Ring. He had horses, he had show horses. He would take a team of horses all the time, go to these parades, and we would, my brother and I would travel with him. And uh, it was funny, we would always kind of rate the different parades we'd wanna go to depending on you know how many floats there were, how much candy you would get. But we loved going to the parade and all the energy, the excitement, all the candy uh, that you would get at the parade. But when the parade is over, you don't stick around. You don't stand on the side of the road by yourself and kind of wait for another year to, to, to come around, right? You leave. The show is over. And I think that's how it would have been for a lot of people that were following Jesus. As soon as the show was over, they were going to give up on Jesus. You know, they just felt like, you know, they weren't willing to, to pay any costs to follow Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised, right? We've seen this before. You know, John tells us six chapters earlier, in John chapter six, there's a, there's a discourse where Jesus describes himself as what? The bread of life. And if you remember correctly, the, the religious leaders didn't take too kindly to this because Jesus was associating himself with being God. And what ends up happening is a lot of the people that were following Jesus begin to fall off. They begin to leave. In fact, in, in John chapter 6, verse 66, we read, After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I think the same thing probably happened with a lot of people here at the triumphal entry. They weren't willing to, to, to pay the price that, that, would, that would it cost to follow Jesus. And that's a good question for each one of us. There, there's a cost that you pay to be here. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a sacrifice that you make. And at the end of the day, your true colors will show up. Because at the end of the day, there will be a cost that you will have to pay. And you'll have to decide, am I a part of the crowd that doesn't truly believe and I'm just here because it's exciting? Or I get something out of Christianity? Or it makes me feel good about myself? Or am I here because I love Jesus and I want to follow Jesus? You know, a second type of person we might find in the crowd is someone who might say something like this. You know, I'm searching for a conquering Jesus who will show the Romans who's boss. You know, that's the kind of Jesus I want. I want, I want a Jesus who's going to set things straight. You know, I'm tired. I'm tired of, uh, of being overtaxed. I'm tired of us being limited in, in our ability to do things because of the Roman oppression. You know, we need a William Wallace to rise up. We need a Braveheart to lead us out. To, to lead us back to, to, to restoration. That's what we, we really need. I'm, I'm fed up with all of the injustices that are happening around me. And you can imagine, there would have been people waving those palm tree branches saying, you know, we need a revolution. You know, they didn't have Hobby Lobby. They couldn't go make posters that said, you know, make Israel great again. They couldn't do that. So they're, they're waving the palm branches. We need a revolution. And you can imagine how this could play out easily. Okay, imagine a father and a son have come to, this, to, come to, to the triumphal entry. They're, they find themselves there. And the father is talking to the son, and he says to the son, you know that this trek that Jesus is making from the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem, where he's passing right before us right now, do you know this has been done before? Not only has this been done before, there was a man who came through on a donkey before, just like this guy, Jesus, King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 1. Go back and read it. Solomon does the same thing. And that, that dad could say to his son, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to be restored. Maybe the kingdom's going to be restored back to what it was like under David and Solomon. All we need is someone to lead us against the Romans. You can see how they would say that, how easy it would be to say that as they wave their palm tree branches. You know, they, they, the Jews, many of them, they long for immediate relief. And here's the deal. 
The point is, your circumstances and what you feel and what you're going through, it can skew your view of Jesus. Not that what you think of Jesus is necessarily wrong, but you've got an imbalanced view of Jesus. You begin to think, Jesus must think like me. He must look like me. He must want the same things I want. And and, and what happens is sometimes we begin to press upon Jesus these expectations that he's never going to fulfill. Because rarely does Jesus do what we want exactly the way we would want in the timing that we want. It just doesn't work that way. And that's what people expected on this day. A third person in the crowd we might see is a Pharisee. We'll call him an unnamed Pharisee because he probably wouldn't want to go on record saying this. But he might say off the record, I'm not searching for a Jesus at all. It's hard to imagine the very first time you read the Gospels. But if you can, maybe when you were younger, you probably assumed in the beginning the religious leaders were going to be the good guys, right? Sorry to spoil it for you if you've not read the New Testament yet, but the religious leaders aren't the good guys. You would have thought they would have been the ones searching for the Messiah, but they're not the ones searching for the Messiah. You know, and and if we were to jump back to Matthew chapter 2, King Herod, there's a scene there where King Herod, he hears about this prophecy of one that will be born in Bethlehem and that this is going to be a king uh, to, to lead the Jews. And King Herod is concerned. He doesn't want this to happen. So what does he do? He calls in the religious leaders and he says, all right, tell me all about what's going to happen. And they tell him, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's what we know from the Old Testament prophecies. Not only do they know the answers, they knew the answers quickly. They knew, but they didn't want Jesus. Why did they not want Jesus? Because Jesus was stealing the limelight. We like the limelight. I want to be up on stage. I want want to be made to feel important. But they were going to have to sacrifice that. And they didn't want to. They didn't want to give up that authority. It bothered them. Every single time Jesus walked into the city and people flooded Jesus and they left them. So that they didn't want their, their popularity to die out. And, you know, Jesus was no friend of the Pharisees. There's not a lot of times in Scripture where he says nice things to them, right? He calls them a brood of vipers. You know, he says that they're like whitewashed tombs. The uh, the outside of the cup and platter are clean, but inside it is filthy. These are not things that you once said about you. So they, they did not like the hypocrisy that Jesus was pointing out. But, you know, they were also just, honestly, they're simply afraid they were going to lose everything. Because this scene only plays out a certain number of ways. You know, either Jesus comes along and he steals all the power, all the authority. That's what they were afraid of. And where does that leave them? It leaves them without a job. Or it upsets the Romans. And all the authority that they've been given by the Romans will, be, will evaporate as well. So they were afraid. And here's the deal. Sometimes we don't always want Jesus in every aspect of our lives either. There's a little Phariseeism in all of us uh, that we can see creeping up. And, and I think that, that even though we might not say we don't want Jesus, there are certain times we don't really want Jesus. Sometimes we want, we want to be the one in the limelight. You know, I want to think, you know, God needs me. Do you ever guys just want to be needed? You ever just, you know, I, I know for me that if I ever find myself thinking, man, this church would be in trouble without Blake. That's not a good place to be in because God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you but he allows all of us to be a part of what he's doing as a good gift to each one of us. You know, sometimes we're very pharisaical when we come to church in the way that we pretend, the mask that we put on. You know, I'm very good at it, and some of you are very good at speaking Christianese. You know, we can speak very fluent Christianese. You know, we can, we can talk a good game, but, but if you ask, if you press in on us 
in, in, in circles like discipleship circles or accountability circles. Uh, you know, we're very uncomfortable. We don't want to reveal our weakness. We don't want to reveal the struggle. We don't want to reveal the sin. But you know, God has a work to do in us. The Pharisees, their hearts were not open. They were calloused. They were hard. And our hearts can be the same way. A fourth person we saw in the crowd is the disciples. And I think if you went to the disciples, here's what they'd say to you. You know, honestly, I'm not 100% sure what I'm searching for. I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is that there is something very special about Jesus. And what I do know is I'm searching for a Jesus that's promised by the Old Testament prophets. You know, John here, again, he's brutally honest uh, with what the disciples are thinking in the moment. They didn't know everything, but they knew something epic was happening right before their eyes. There was an excitement to it, and they were committed. You know, earlier I, I mentioned John chapter 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There were many that walked away. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But what happens with the disciples? Jesus calls them out. In, in, in verse 67, it says, so Jesus said to the 12, he turns to them and he says, what are you going to do? You see all the crowds, people walking away. You 12, what are you going to do? And Simon Peter, he says this, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't have all the answers, but they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he truly was the King of Israel. Again, John is very particular with his words and how he shapes his gospel. But if we went all the way back, past John chapter 6, past John chapter 5, all the way back to John chapter 1, there is a scene we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget. Jesus is calling the disciples, and there's a scene where Jesus is interacting with Nathaniel. And Jesus wants to know, basically, Nathaniel, who do you think that I am? And this is what Nathaniel says. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. And listen to these words. He said, you are the king of Israel. It should give you goosebumps to think about what it was like for Nathaniel at that parade that day, at that triumphal entry, hearing all those people chant, king of Israel, king of Israel, king of Israel. Nathaniel's faith was becoming sight even in that moment. He knew that this king on a donkey would one day, one day be a king on a horse. A day was coming when, when Jesus would conquer the entire world. But on this day, he was conquering hearts. And he was helping the disciples see that, that what they believe is true, that he truly is the son of God. You know, I began this morning talking about an article from the New York Times uh, that we need to search for a Jesus that looks more like us. You know, that's a common theme in our world today. You know, a number of years ago, there was a book that came out by Dan Kimball entitled, uh, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. And it was a good book. And it basically pointed out some, some hypocrisy in the church. Um, and, it, and much of it was true. And it said, but, but people were much more open to Jesus. And I think that's true. But the danger of that book, and, and I think what it missed is that, but people want the Jesus they want. You know, I can, I, can, I can bash the church. It's this, it's that. It's filled with hypocrites. Whatever you want to say, and you can like Jesus. But the reality is, Jesus has some hard truths to teach all of us. And sometimes we want to remember the love side of Jesus, the mercy side of Jesus. We don't want to remember the justice side of Jesus. Here's what I would say to you as a final thought. Instead of searching for a Jesus who looks more like you, seek to look more like the Jesus of the Bible. That's the way you do it. 
You don't try to look for Jesus that looks like you. You try, to, you try to change yourself to look more like the Jesus of the Bible. What is a great way that you can do that this week? Why not read through John's gospel? Why not read the rest of the story? Why not read the rest of the passion narrative? And every time you, you read about Jesus, every time he shows mercy, circle it. Every time he, he says a hard truth, circle it. Every time he, he shows bravery, circle it. Keep track of all the things that you were circling because that is the Jesus that we must pursue. You know, another great thing you could do this week is you could read a book. Here's a book by our pastor that just came out recently entitled Jesus' Final Week. How appropriate. The subtitle is um, From Triumphal Entry to Empty Tomb. I trust no one more than Pastor Cook to, to point us to a biblical Jesus. What a great way to spend your week working through these chapters. And church family, our goal this week, as we head into the most important Sunday of the year, the Super Bowl Sunday uh, for Christians, we need to grow. We need to be more faithful. We need to be more like Jesus as we, re as we await the return of our King. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today for this passage. We thank you that all the gospel writers felt it was important enough uh, to record their own their own version of the triumphal entry, how they saw it from their own eyes. We thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, help our church this week to not only to remember what Jesus has done, the things that he did on this holy week, but Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would bear witness, just like the crowd's people bared witness. We would bear witness to the hope that resides within. In Christ's name I pray, amen.